0: You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin.
1: With Major League Baseball playoffs soon upon us, we thought that this episode might appeal to our baseball fans. It seems like a distant memory now, when about a month into the coronavirus pandemic, Taiwan was the only place on the planet where live professional baseball was being played. My guest on this episode is Professor Andrew Morris, whose research on baseball in Taiwan presents a fascinating new angle and way of seeing Taiwan's history. For one, in Taiwan, baseball should not just be seen as a symbol of American culture. Also, did you know that there's a baseball-related image featured on Taiwan's currency? Or that Taiwan's Little League baseball team won the Little League World Series 17 times from 1979 to 1996? We'll be talking about all this and more in this episode. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Great. Um, So, first of all, let's start with the beginning. Can you tell me, how did you get interested in this really specific topic of research, baseball in Taiwan's history?
0: Yes. um, It had to do with living in Taiwan, actually, in the city of Taichung. And um, I was vaguely aware that there was a professional baseball league and ended up moving to um, a neighborhood in Taichung that was very close to the baseball stadium, and so I just started walking over there and watching games and practices and stuff. And before long, was really in love with the baseball league. Um, and then the more I paid attention to the league, and the more I just hung out with people that were at the games or in the you know the baseball shops and stuff, and talked to them about their experiences in baseball and their their love for Taiwanese baseball. Um, I started to realize that there was this great history to it and I have to confess that I had been very ignorant up to that moment and I when I saw them playing baseball I thought well wow, they're playing my game um, I'm from America and I love baseball and what do you know our American game of baseball is here in Taiwan and I couldn't have been more wrong and what I was really really fascinated to learn about and you know, very humbling as well as to realize that this wasn't a a history of American culture, this was a history of Japanese culture that had made its way to Taiwan during the period of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And once I understood that, it really opened up so many things for me in understanding Taiwan as a place um, that I I think in the West, we often don't learn very much about that episode of colonialism. And so baseball was really a window for me to see this whole great, not, not always great, but very, very interesting colonial history.
1: right. Um, and just before we get into like talking a little bit more of the nitty-gritty, like could you mention what were some of the most surprising or interesting facts about baseball in Taiwan that you came across in your research?
0: Um, I would say the most important thing that that came out over time and clearly became the center of it for me, was the role of Taiwan's indigenous peoples in the game of baseball. And at some point I understood that many of the great players in Taiwan were aborigine people. Um, But it took me a while longer to to understand why that was. And it turns out to also have been a really, it has a very uh, specific historical reason. And it has to do with, again, colonial history, the Japanese getting into Taiwan in 1895 wanting those mountain, often mountain territories that had the materials that they needed and, you know, wanted for their um, imperial expansion. And so namely camphor, um, two thirds of the world's camphor trees were in Taiwan and those were in in those mountains, marble, tea. Um, And so for the Japanese to get their hands on those materials meant um, having being able to administer the people of those areas in Taiwan in a peaceful way, and baseball actually became a big part of that. The way they talked about pacifying, and again, they, they called them they referred to them often as savages, and that was a term that had come from the Qing Dynasty as well. Um, but a large part of the way that the Japanese tried to deal with those mountain areas was to you know quote unquote civilize them through education and through baseball, um, and so they were all they were also very proud of it in terms of reporting back to the home islands they would always show what a great job we're doing out in our laboratory in Taiwan and baseball was always a big part of how they um, spoke about uh, bringing progress to these people who were again to use their their term savage and with, with Japanese colonial training now these people could become airplane pilots and they could become politicians and scientists and baseball players
1: Hmm, that's fascinating. I think that's a, a piece of history that people don't really know about. Interesting. Um, I understand that Jai was known as Taiwan's baseball capital, and um, how did that come to be? And do we see any signs of that legacy in Jai today?
0: Yes, um, Jai is definitely known as the like the spiritual home of Taiwanese baseball. And that does live on in a recent film. If anyone's seen the film Kano, that is, is all about that history. And so Jai's position um, in base, in Taiwanese baseball history has to do with that school. And again, we have to go back to colonial history. And that was a school that the Japanese set up, um, a vocational school for forestry and agriculture. And the shortened name of it was Kano. Mm-hmm. And that was one of their schools for training um, what would be kind of like low-level uh, imperial officials um, to to administer things in Taiwan or as the empire ex- expanded further, say into Vietnam. Um, and so they would train Japanese students, Taiwanese students, and even Aborigine students, which is quite rare at that time um, for these. Like I said, like low-level imperial official uh, positions in agriculture and forestry that they would then plan to send out further, um, you know, south and east. Um, it was a um, it was really outside of the network of baseball, and so baseball had been in Taiwan since 1895. For the first 25 years or so, it was really exclusive to the Japanese people there. They didn't like having the Taiwanese play. And they were, in fact, afraid of having the Taiwanese play and maybe show them up. But after World War One ended, the idea of colonialism uh, changed, and it had to do more with trying to include these people and to try to raise them up with us. And so as that was happening um, throughout Taiwan, Taiwanese people started to play baseball. This school in Jiayi, this school called, uh, abbreviated as Kano, was the the place where um, Japanese, Taiwanese, and Aborigine players were actually playing on the same teams most consistently. Most most schools were really segregated, um, or you know mostly segregated up to that point. Really throughout um, the colonial period, but Jai uh, this this uh, the school Kano because it was kind of like a low-level vocational school, it ended up having more Taiwanese students. Um, it wasn't as um, as prestigious for the Japanese students like this. A lot of the schools in Taipei were. And so anyway, because of this long history, and this very specific history of the mixing of Japanese, Taiwanese, and Aboriginal students, their teams then, by definition, were very unique for, as they called it, mixing the three races. Um, And then they went on to become very successful. And it's not only remembered in Taiwan, but it's actually remembered in Japan as well, um, that the school Kano, because they got second place in 1931. So the film Kano then is about this run of the school going from being a pretty crummy team to just in a couple years becoming the best team in Taiwan and almost the best team in the Japanese Empire.
1: Right, so it must have been a huge source of pride for the Japanese too then.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It had to do, And so that's what's really special about Kano is historically it's very important for pride for Aborigine people because they're a part of this. It's part of pride for Taiwanese people and it's part of a pride to be held by the Japanese colonizers because they could say, "Look what we've done. We've we've successfully, um, as again as they would say, mixed the, the three races into a unit that can do well." Colonialism, and they would always say that we're not like the British, who are down there, you know, trampling over the Indians and just bleeding them dry. We're not going to be that kind of empire. We're about strengthening these, these areas that, that they got to. Of course, that's a very problematic thing, you know, for for us to discuss. But that was their way of talking about it, and so Kano was a great reminder of that, and so there are people today that still remember Kano in Japan in that same way um, as a real success of the empire.
1: Interesting. Um, So, I mean, yeah, it's very interesting how they cloaked the colonialism in this baseball, and I'm wondering if you came across anything in your research about how the Aborigines thought about this, or maybe they didn't see it that way.
0: This is another really good question, because when I was doing my research, I, as I started to focus on this. And I, at first, I started to see it as a real question of opportunity. Um, and that is to say, there weren't a lot of schools where Aborigine young people could go to and get you know, specialized training and compete with Taiwanese, let alone Japanese students. And so what I wanted to do for, for a while was to see baseball as this very unique way um, pathway for, for Aborigine in this case, young men, to get somewhere in the empire. And there were all sorts of players that, in fact, did really well in their schools in Taiwan and then were asked to go play in high schools in Japan, Uh, several played in the major leagues in in Japan. But you're also asking another really interesting question, which is, what's the other side of that assimilation? And that's really harder to get at because I think the nature of historical records and historical documents is that you see Especially in the, this case of, of the empire, you would see a lot more presentation of, of pride and of progress and of opportunity. Uh, but in my writing, I did try to, to think about that more, which is what, what's the cost then um, for these for these people to go to Japan and live there and play there, but to always know that they're they're being seen differently. They're always seen as having been savages who were raised out of this by the Japanese. I, I think we have to imagine that there was a significant cost for, you know for those people at the same time that there was this great opportunity.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, also over time, I mean, and we can't just fault the Japanese for that, you know, like how the Aborigines would be educated or like, you know, even by the Kuomintang or whatever, and like maybe the dilution of their culture and their um, language or whatever as well.
0: Yeah, I think it is important to realize that the Japanese built on a lot of ways of thinking that the, that the Qing dynasty had already put in place um, forms of discrimination, although they, they did become much more powerful and um, kind of weaponized when once the Japanese got there. Uh, but that history is really one where so many different peoples have had a role in oppressing indigenous peoples, taking their land, um, taking away their opportunities, taking away the chances for equality that so many other people have had in, in modern Taiwan. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And going back to Kano, um, I was wondering if you could tell us um, if there's anything about that film in terms of, like, from a historical perspective, like, how historically accurate was it, and what did the film get right or wrong?
0: I have several different different feelings about the film. Um, The first thing I would say is that it's great to watch. I think it looks great... um, The baseball is really good uh, because they got real baseball players to play the roles of those baseball players. I think if you watch other films with baseball, sometimes it's kind of a joke to see the way that people have never played the game before and now all of a sudden on the pitching mound pretending to throw 90 miles an hour or something. Um, So it actually looks really good, and it's very high-quality baseball that's being played in all those scenes. And there's so much baseball in the movie. I think they're really... They knew that and they took advantage of the fact that this is very high quality baseball that they're filming. And so that's why I think there's so much <laughs> baseball in the movie. Um, and in many ways it is very historically accurate and I, when I watch it I, I can see references to certain things certain things that were said, certain instances, and I know exactly where that came from. I know exactly what historical document that came from or what interview with a former player that came from uh, there's a great body of oral histories of these players that was that was done um in the probably in the 90s the 2000s um, and so in many ways it's it is very historically accurate on the other hand i think there are also real historical problems with it from a big picture and i would just say very simply that the main thing that that troubles me about it is the way it really accepts that Japanese narrative of progress, brought by the Japanese, for all the people of Taiwan to progress together. Um, you know, there, it, it's really tricky because there is definitely some truth in that—that that the Japanese engineering and and electric grid and educational system brought modern progress in many different forms to Taiwan. But as historians, you know, we always problematize that, and we always say, "Well, what else came with that? What was the price? What was the cost that came with these technological advances?" And the film doesn't—it doesn't think that way. It doesn't work that way. It really takes, um, pretty much at surface level, those Japanese boasts about their their great system of colonialism. I think it's it's too bad because in many other ways, it really is. A fun movie to watch if you have three and a half hours <laughs> but I always have to um, give that very sizable disclaimer when I talk about this film that it's it's both great and also very problematic
1: right and um, what kind of Japanese influence do we still see in Taiwanese baseball today
0: the coaches um, the, the system of play um, that was developed during the Japanese period lived on once those coaches and players left in 1945 because you know by definition everyone who was playing baseball in Taiwan had come up under that system um and so those coaches who had played you know as as Japanese subjects and who are now coaching in Taiwan really kept those same philosophies of baseball um the terminology, a lot of the terminology stayed the same, even a lot of the hitting styles and pitching styles. And so if you if you watch, say, Japanese baseball or, or Taiwanese baseball or even Korean baseball, if we get to the, the bigger empire, um, there are things that look different from, say, American baseball. And um, one of the big things that I always notice is just uh, in hitting and the way that, that, that batters use their hips – in, in a in a swing, um, but but things like that really stuck around in Taiwan. Once the Japanese people were gone, um, the people who remained were very proud of having learned this system and having having learned it really well, and having achieved a very high level of proficiency in the sport. And so, even though the Americans showed up in terms of you know the, the American allies and there were uh, military bases for the next thirty years. Um, after that point, and there were occasions for contact with with American baseball teams and that kind of thing, there wasn't that much influence, really. Um, it was much more this Japanese style that people were really proud of. Um, and it has to do really with politics as well, that um, when the KMT came and immediately denied everything that the Japanese had achieved and denied the Taiwanese people's role in also having become a modernized people and started to call them slaves and said we're here to free you from your slave ideology mm-hmm. um, it all that those Japanese ideas and approach to the game took on a whole other significance which is you know essentially this is how we do it and you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> uh, baseball wasn't that popular in China and so it became in an indirect way this really important thing that you could hold on to from the Japanese period when little else remained. Um the to it was very thorough starting in nineteen forty six in terms of getting rid of pretty much anything there was that was Japanese, you know, especially things like flags or clothing, but even, you know, sandals or books, uh, Japanese language newspapers, of course. But Baseball remained, uh, because the KMT was a regime that supported sports. They had sent teams to the Olympics in China. Um, baseball wasn't big in China, but as a ruling philosophy, the KMT was really committed to a healthy citizenry, a healthy populace, and saw sports as important in, the, in, that, in that way. So on this technicality, then, baseball was allowed to stick around. Um, and so I think it, it really won a lot of... It just took on that much more significance because it was this one thing that we all knew we all know this is japanese and they can't take that from us because japanese baseball is you know un- undeniably you know high quality and uh, it got its own real tradition oh,
1: that's and so hilarious. there are all
0: these, always these connections um and so Coaches, uh, the the coaches would—they went home, but they would continue to stay in touch with, say, their their former players in Taiwan. And so I've I've heard a lot of stories of um, coaches that would send the newest Japanese baseball magazines to Taiwan, just for their, um, you know, for their former pupils or their former uh, students to to read and carry on the tradition in this uh, kind of subversive way. Uh.
1: Interesting. So fascinating. Yeah. I, I love this aspect of your research, too, like how it um, reflects on the whole national identity and all that. Um, but my next question would be like, uh, so how did baseball change after the KMT arrived on the scene?
0: They, as I said, they had to allow it. They had to allow it to um, exist as the you know the most popular form of of sport that was there wasn't the only form the japanese had also um really popularized rugby um tennis but baseball really resonated and it was really the one that that stuck the most and so when they came to arrive that was the one that they they simply must have realized we can't take this away we've got to let this stick what they did was try to um just encompass it more within their own ROC sports structure. They tried to find um, more reliable people to be in charge of say like the ROC Baseball Federation. Their approach was really original, um, which was they would they, they knew they had to find Taiwanese people to run the sport because very few people in the mainland knew about the sport of baseball. But they wanted to make sure they could find Taiwanese people they could trust and so they would often use what were called the Banshanren which were the Taiwanese people who had gone to the mainland say during World War II um, maybe you know, during the 30s and the 40s and who had experience in the mainland had gone to maybe escape Japanese colonialism maybe they felt a call to the Chinese Revolution led by Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek there was this group of were called banshanren or like half mountain people and when they went back to Taiwan with the KMT that was a group that the KMT looked at to run certain things and they could say we've got a Taiwanese person doing this but it was a Taiwanese person that they knew was loyal to the KMT and they tried to change the language of baseball um, because like I said the language was Japanese up until this time and so they tried to enforce Mandarin language onto the game. Um, there was a one of the great coaches of the fifties and sixties was a guy named Jin Yong Chang, um, who I had the opportunity to interview in the nineties. And I was talking to him about this this moment when the jap when, sorry when the KMT came and took over the sport and how they were changing it. And I asked him about that attempt to try to change the terminology to, to change baseball terminology from Japanese to Mandarin. And he looked at me and he said, there's no Mandarin in baseball. 帮球没有国语. And I just thought that was the most fascinating idea. 帮球没有国语. There's no Mandarin in baseball. This is not a sport that has anything to do with with the KMT, with their vision of China. This is our sport. And so that's why even to now, you, there's, there's certain parts of the of the lingo that have remained Japanese, even though over time there's been more kind of Mandarin standardization of of terminology.
1: Yeah. I found it interesting that you said that um, they came to realize, like, baseball was one of the things that they would allow to exist. And I was very surprised to learn from um, a chapter in your book that I read that there were some baseball tournaments that were still played after the 228 massacre. Is that correct?
0: Yes, there were a handful. It's it's pretty grisly to think about. I, th- I think the, the main thing to know is that there weren't a lot, but there, the ones that were held um, were of the kind that were s- still trying to integrate Taiwan with the mainland. Um, and so, so by 1947, um, now you know the KMT has a mainland at this point still and Taiwan, and they did try to use um, the sport that's very popular in Taiwan and try to link up with those communities in. The mainland that had had some exposure to baseball. Um, Shanghai was one because the Japanese had held Shanghai, of course. Um, the Northeast had more of a tradition because, of course, the Northeast had been ruled um, in, in the Japanese puppet state of Manchukuo. The few tournaments that went on that summer had to do with that effort to to kind of de-Taiwan, de-Taiwanize baseball and link it up to more of a an ROC tradition. But I think you're right. The main thing is it's it's pretty grisly to to realize that they, they were still running these tournaments and um, there was a real famous coach who was killed in, in the massacre as just for the same reasoning that he was a local elite whose status had to do with his expertise in the Japanese culture of baseball. And so like the many doctors and professionals and lawyers and teachers, um, I think it's significant to realize that a baseball coach would meet the same fate.
1: But that's really interesting that they tried to make the baseball like, um, like a source of, like uh, I guess, Chinese pride. But I don't think that sounds like it was very successful.
0: Well, I would, I would agree with you um, that it wasn't really a natural match until the Little League um, triumphs that start in 1969. And amazingly, that is the moment when ROC nationalism does connect really squarely with, with baseball. Um, it hadn't for for more than two decades of the KMT rule in Taiwan, but at that moment, um, it really did.
1: Yeah. So, please let's talk about the little league. Like, how did that get started? And um, I understand it really gave Taiwan a sort of platform in the international arena. There's so much to talk about that.
0: Yeah, it, it is a really huge topic. Um, the The moment that sets the whole history off. Um, is in 1968 uh, there's a a Japanese team that is visiting Taiwan Japanese Little League team Um, certain versions of the legend say that it was the team that had won the Little League World Series um, the year before it was not that team but they were from the same area maybe the same county Um, so there's some misunderstanding about that but that team from Wakayama came and played the team from Hongye. Uh, school in Taitung. Um and that was a, a team of aborigine kids and um, they had won a an island wide cup um, a couple of months earlier and were recognized as the best youth team in Taiwan and so when the Japanese team came to play they played a few games and um, the last one was against the Hongye team and when the Hongye team beat them, uh, people went bananas, just to put it uh, simply. And it was like this light bulb went off, which was, there's this whole structure out there of Little League Baseball that we've we've shown we now belong by virtue of our team being able to beat this great team from Japan. Um, and so the next year, 1969, is the first year that um, a Taiwan team actually wins the Asia-Pacific region. And comes to america and they play in the little league world series which is held every year in williamsport pennsylvania and they won that and um it was really for the next decade plus it was just this annual occasion um for some of the best 12 year old baseball players that have ever lived um, because of the way that they were training they were taken out of school and they just trained and they played and they played and they played and they played um part of the it was really glorious just to see these beautiful kids coming, um, and playing just this high level baseball. Most years they would win the little league world series. And, and, after winning it several years in a row in 1975 for one year, they said, we're just going to have an American champion this year. Um, and they were sick of having essentially Taiwanese teams win every year before that Japanese teams. But then they went back the next year to inviting foreign teams again. And so, um, between 1969 and 1981, the Taiwanese teams won the Little League World Series ten times, and seventeen times in between 1969 and 1996. And so, uh, there's there's two parts of this as well, which is one is it, it was this annual real celebration of the ROC, um, and two thirds roughly of the Taiwan population would be up at night watching these games, um, and if you talk to so many people in Taiwan who have a certain age and up, they all remember it you know, unanimously, um, staying up late, eating instant noodles, setting off firecrackers when the game's over. And the flags that were at the heart of it were always the ROC flags. Um, so it really did click in with ROC nationalism in, in that way. There is a dark side to it, though, which is um, part of the success had to do with... Um, extra legal means we'll just say and so the teams that were sent were not the kind of community teams that Little League Baseball was supposed to be about so the teams that were coming from you know Ohio or Florida or something were from a a town or a little a little league or community and the Taiwan teams were often an island wide team and so at some point the Little League structure and authorities got kind of sick of it um and They thought it was too blatant to send, essentially, a national all-star team. Um, And then there's one more part of it, which is, I think, really fascinating and really unique to Taiwan. And it also explains part of the dominance, not to take away from the fact that these kids just played beautiful baseball, period. They trained uh, really solid coaching, um, very dedicated coaches. Um, It was so prestigious to play at that level. And Mm -hmm. so they played very very high level baseball but there's one more part of it that has to be said which is um, little league is for 11 and 12 year olds some of the kids were a little bit older oh. because they had been born in rural Taiwan if you so if we do the math born say in the late 50s early 60s when it wasn't always the case that the the day that my kid is born we get the birth certificate it might be my kid is born today and six months later i get around to registering him um, at the at the town office with the county office or something and so it was this very uh just coincidental thing that made the kids a lot older than their official documents said Um, they may have had another you know another six months or another year in, in the sun in taiwan and so these were often 13 year olds they were playing against twelve-year-olds from um, from other places, so that was that is part of the history.
1: Oh, that's interesting. There seems to be a lot of like unfair advantages there. <laughs> <It's interesting>. Yes, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there were always one people always wondered here. How are those kids so good? Yeah, um, and so again, my my answer is it had a lot to do with the training, and then something to do with some of the kids just simply being older. Um, sometimes the questioning here was not always so innocent too. Sometimes it took on kind of racist forms, um, assumptions of of cheating that were kind of defined in racial ways. Um, there's one story that I remember from the early 70s that came out, really fascinating moment at the Little League World Series, when, I want to say it's maybe 73 or so, um, I'm pretty sure it's the year they're playing Gary, Indiana, and that's mainly an African-American team. And the coach of the Gary team senses the white, anti-Chinese, anti-Taiwanese racism that's being directed at these kids and the coaches. And the black coach of the Gary team actually kind of links up and says... You know, we're we're all in this together. You know, the the same people that say these things about you are the same ones that say it about me and my kids. And so, it provided these, this really interesting space for for connections in different different ways we might imagine.
1: Wow, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that it was interesting that you mentioned that um, the lily became like a kind of a source of ROC pride but from what I understand like a lot of the overseas Taiwanese especially in the US it was also a source of pride for them but perhaps in a little bit of a different way
0: that is true Um, and I'm glad you asked because on the face of it it was ROC pride and the flags that people were waving in the stands were mainly these ROC flags but it's also true that there were these Taiwanese people in the U.S., so many of them were of college age or graduate school age, probably more more specifically, um, who had started you know, having the chance to, to study in the U.S., often at the Big Ten schools, and so it's not too far um, to get to Williamsport. And they started showing up, and they started rooting for the Taiwan team. And they would start... Um, holding up signs that had to do with Taiwan independence or they would wear t-shirts that would have Taiwan independence slogans on them or they would have balloons Uh, they would have airplanes that flew over um, with Taiwan specific slogans or Taiwan independence slogans and at some point uh, the KMT started to get sick of being uh, humiliated in that way or ridiculed in that way and started sending thugs from Chinatown gangs up to fight um, and so you'd have what sound like these incredible pitched battles after the game was over during the game you'd have all these people ostensibly cheering for the same team but in two different ways and then when the game's over these, these brutal fights out in the parking lot with, with metal rods and the New York Times would report on it and they would say something like after the game different groups of Chinese fans fought in the parking lot it is not known why <laughs> <laughs> and really Really uncurious uh, reporting about this pretty significant geopolitical issue, um, but that's a big part of it. Really, is that on the face of it, it was this ROC pride and nationalism, but that was always challenged from largely from these students who were there and had the ability to say things on camera or show messages on camera that they never could have said in Taiwan. And of course, that that footage, which it's being Broadcast by ABC here, it's all being beamed directly by satellite to Taiwan, and so people in Taiwan are seeing these slogans, um, and so the government is is constantly telling ABC, don't if you see something with Chinese characters, just don't put it on camera because it might say something that we don't want it to say. And ABC, <laughs> what do you want us to do here? We're trying to <laughs> broadcast the game and show people in the in the audience and the stands. Um, So also just really fascinating details like that that come out as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And so what actually happened to Towns Little League? Did any of these like technicalities, like the fact that they really had an all-star team that was was comprised of um, players throughout the island versus like one locality or like the age or like did these things catch up with the Little League or like what happened?
0: the main question is the one about the community size and that formation of the league and so 1996 um is essentially when little league uh international just said we can't let you do this anymore we're we're really trying to standardize the way that we run our tournaments and set up our leagues and you know have those teams qualify and stuff and so taiwan really um, had no choice but to pull out at that time of little league because Taiwanese youth baseball just isn't organized in the same way. The way, you know, Little League baseball structure is specific to American society and maybe even suburban culture a lot of the time and stuff. Um, And so it was also a lot to ask of them to try to stick to that same rule that uh, for every 50,000 population you had to have a separate league. Doesn't make sense. Um, in, in Taiwan to try to run it that way so they just kind of agreed to not be part of it for a while they were let back in in the late 2000s and I think they did come to some um, reasonable you know, compromise about how they would uh, put together the teams it's not exactly on the US model but it's something more like it um, but it's also true that since that time they had not won the championship uh, so it it's probably not a coincidence.
1: Yeah. Well, what would you say is the lasting legacy of Taiwan's Lily? Did a lot, any of them go on to be professional players and so on?
0: Yes, many of them did, uh, go on. First, that, that first batch when they became old enough to play professionally. Well, first, many of them would go on to play for the national team, um, the adult national team. And then in the eighties to play in Japan before, Taiwan's professional baseball was developed um, in 1990 and then when the CPBL started that was also full of many of those former little league players um, I think it also had a legacy uh, here I think it had a legacy for that that kind of strange moment I think it's, it's often remembered as this, this quirk of history that those years when Taiwanese little league teams would just win every year I think um, it's it's very clearly remembered um, when people think about youth sports and even the teams the American teams that were able to beat the Taiwanese teams were celebrated um, you know really nationwide so there's even a 30 for 30 on ESPN about one of those teams I think from Kirkland Washington that beat the Taiwanese team that year because it was just so hard (laughs) it was so rare that it ever happened Um, in Taiwan the legacy I think to some degree is maybe just nostalgia um, for those days you know of um, this idea when we're in it together and I think as nostalgia always does it kind of erases some of the problems that were around in that society Um, but it, it is it does feel like it's kind of vanished, though. Um, in terms of a legacy, I think it's it's not a it's not a legacy that's really with us. I think you have to look a little bit further to find wh- where it is.
1: Oh, um, and, it and it's very interesting that um, you mentioned like Taiwan's professional baseball league. It's not really that old. Like you said, it was established in 1990.
0: Yeah, that was the first uh, season. Oh, 1990.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, right, and getting back to the um, Little League, like I also found it interesting to learn that there's an image of the Little League winning a championship on the $500 bill. Um, what's the story behind that?
0: You know, I've never quite known um, exactly why that team was chosen. Um, I will make a very minor technical correction. Um, so this was this team that's represented here it's actually from the year 2000 and so it's not a little league team because it oh. was in those years when they were not allowed to play in little league uh. um but it was a youth team from um, Tidong County and it was Puyuma Aborigine Boys and they they won the Pacific Cup that year and so that's a like Asia Australia um youth cup that I think is run by Pony League Baseball which is just a different youth league um and I think I've always just assumed that they were chosen because they represented both baseball history and that history of youth baseball, and also the role the Aborigine players have played in that game and really defining the game. It's it's just hard, very hard to imagine Taiwanese baseball without the the role of of Taiwan's Aborigines, who were you know two percent of the population, but um, and have been for the last century, but really in many ways, define the history of baseball in Taiwan.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it seems kind of highly unusual to have an image like that on a piece of currency, wouldn't you say?
0: I've never seen anything like it. I I can't think of anything close to it. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it says a lot for Taiwan, too, the way that they thought very broadly about what money is. It doesn't necessarily have to be old ruthless (laughs) dictators or (laughs) slave-owning presidents or
1: something. Yeah, right. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, like, the CFPL, the Chinese Professional Baseball League, and, you know, the establishment and the ups and downs that it's had?
0: Sure. The league, like I said, began play in 1990. And the idea was essentially, as I was saying, which is that... um, People realized they were wasting this resource that they had been producing all the years. All those years of these young baseball players, who pretty much to go any further had to leave Taiwan. So they just figured, why don't we try to do something here um, and take advantage of of their skill and their popularity? So for the first several years, the league was full of um, you know, as you asked, former little league stars, and so it brought this immediate popularity to to the League, because everyone knew these names. Um, And maybe now they're on the Dragons or the Lions or the Tigers or something, but everyone always remembered they they had played for such and such a school um, in the past. Um, And so I think the the League rode its popularity for several years based largely on that. Um, It achieved, uh, I would say, a pretty high level of play in those years. They they were also very clever in trying to attract foreign players to to raise the quality of, of the game. They could be Japanese, Korean, American, Dominican were the main groups, uh, but also Panamanian, and Venezuelan, Colombian players. Uh, I, talk, I remember talking to one of them who said that at least early on in the league's history they had chosen American players who could also serve as informal coaches, who had enough experience mm-hmm in the American system and the American style of play that they could they could bring some of those tips to their teammates here um, I think what really uh, caused uh, very serious problems for for the CPBL and I think it's something they've never totally recovered from is all the game throwing scandals and the gambling scandals that started in the mid 90s um, and and Betting on baseball became a huge business. And the bettors, the gamblers and the gangs, essentially, um, quickly realized that they could pay the players uh, more to affect the result of the game than the players were being paid by their teams. Oh, wow. And so it, it was a real unfortunate time because they had reached a very high level of play by the mid-'90s. Um, and when you're the L.A. Dodgers visited Taiwan. I'm pretty sure that was 1993 and the Taiwan teams won two out of three against the Dodgers. Um, and so they were really recognized as, as having achieved this very high level of play, very popular um, all around the country. The, the league was expanding. It had gone from four teams to six teams to seven teams. Um, but the the gambling scandals and the game throwing made it really unattractive because people just realized they might be a game and you, you could have players even on both teams that were trying to lose you're trying to drop a fly ball or trying to strike out trying to throw more balls and strikes um and it's come up several times in the CPBL's history and I, I think part of it is just simply that the player salaries have never been high enough to just exclude that to preclude that possibility the gamblers could always and the gangs could always you know Pay them more than the teams were paying them. Were paying them so um, that hasn't that's been gone for several years now. It seems like they've solved that pretty well, and the government got pretty serious several years about it, and um, there, you know civil civil penalties now for doing that. But I think it really did stain people's um, image of the league, and it, it definitely did that around the world because those American players would come back. And I remember hearing them talk about it, and you know, Vin Scully, you know, broadcasting a Dodger game and talking about um, the game throwing scandals in Taiwan that had been passed on by maybe a guy who had played in Taiwan is now now is on the Dodgers or so was now on the Mets. Um, and so it was really too bad. I think it uh, it really stained people's perceptions everywhere of that league.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it was very disappointing for fans. But I'm also interested in knowing like how the introduction of uh, more foreign players in the CPBL um, impacted it, because I seem to have the impression from reading some of what you wrote was that that actually backfired in a way um, because they had a were introducing a higher and higher percentage of players that were non-Taiwanese.
0: That's right. In the in the first few years they would get these players that would often stay for a lot longer. They would stay for several years and many of them would learn how to speak Chinese and they would be on TV advertisements or mm. they'd be in magazine advertisements. Um, and they really were, um, they just, they fit in and they they understood their role and they, they understood that, you know, I, I'm just kind of thinking, I'm imagining what they were thinking, which is they're not going to make the major leagues, um, as in the American major leagues but to be a big star in Taiwan and to be paid pretty well and to be adored by fans and have people chant your name everywhere you go that's a that's a pretty good life so they had that for several years but then it's another point by the mid 90s or so they started um, cycling more players in. so they'd get an American pitcher say they'd, they'd use him twice he didn't do very well so they'd send him home and get another one and they would just start cycling through players very quickly and it was obviously people who didn't really know anything about the community. They they had maybe recently been pitching in the Mexican League, and now they're just on a different foreign assignment, so they're just here for a couple months. Um, it was also at that time that there were so many teams between the CPBL and the next league that formed, the Taiwan Major League, all of a sudden there were 11 teams. And there weren't enough Taiwanese players to fill up 11 high-quality professional rosters, and so they were more and more reliant on these foreign players, and I think that that really had an effect as well, that it it's one thing to have two or three foreigners on your team that are cool, and you you they've been there for a while, and they fit in, but then it became something like there'd be 12 foreign players, and they're all there for a couple months each or something, and just much less attractive.
1: Yeah, I'm and sure the fans that have to do. Yeah, the media would
0: talk about it too. The media would just um, point out certain teams that uh, relied so heavily on, say, foreign pitchers. Um, And I think it's easy to imagine how that would, at some point, just become less interesting. It's also the same moment when ESPN is appearing on Taiwanese TV sets and American baseball is now shown a lot. Um, Japanese baseball is now appearing on cable all the time. And so I definitely remember having conversations back at that, at that time and people saying, why would I watch the CPBL, which is full of people I've never heard of, and they might be throwing the games, when I could watch the major leagues or I could watch um, Japanese pro baseball.
1: Right, right. Interesting. Um, and you touched upon the Taiwan Major League, and can you talk about like um, that league and why it failed eventually?
0: Yes, they came around in '97, and I think um, they were obviously just trying to take advantage of the popularity that the CPBL had had won. And it was people who had tried to get teams, uh, tried to raise teams to enter the CPBL, and were just turned down. So they thought, well, we'll just start our own league. Um, the quality of the league was never as good. Um, they had to raid the CPBL for players. They did it. They did get some of the best players from the CPBL. They did get several former major leaguers um, from the U.S. Um, to join their rosters, but kind of the overall rosters were, were never quite as good as the CPBL. But what was interesting about them was that they were much more in tune with the politics of the time and Taiwanese nationalism. The CPBL started playing in 1990. It was dreamed up in 88. Approved in '89, and at that time you couldn't say Taiwanese this and Taiwanese that. Really, um, there was, there's no chance that that league was ever going to be called the Taiwanese Pro Baseball League in 1988 or '89 or 1990. Um, so it was stuck with this this name that just, obviously, just feels weird. <laughs> uh, yeah. Chinese Professional Baseball League. A few years made a big difference for the TML, and so Taiwan Major League was was a pretty obvious choice for them. And then what was also interesting is that the names of their teams were all taken from Aborigine languages. Their uniforms were all designed to have certain elements that were taken from Aborigine dress. Um, the cultural appropriation of it was strong. You know, I think now we would look at it and we would see more problems than people did 20 years ago. But it was it was fresh in that way, and they they definitely showed that they were more interested in, in projecting a a Taiwanese image then, to talk about China. Um,
1: right.
0: You know, the way the CPBL did. Um, they had less problems with the game throwing. Um, not zero problems, but they were less plagued by that. But the play just wasn't that good and so they lasted for six years and then um, Chen Shrebyan, who was president by then, said let's, um, it's, it's not really <laughs> sustainable to have two leagues here Going at each other's throats. There were 11 teams by that time, and it didn't make any sense. So they got it down to a single league of um, six teams, and I think that's probably more the size that, that Taiwan can sustain.
1: Right. Oh, uh, yeah. That's interesting. The whole like um, the name of the CPBL, and um, I wonder if that's if there's any chance that's going to change. Cause so much has changed in Taiwan, right?
0: Um, I wish they would I wish they'd think about it you know because it's weird though that the Taiwan Major League was such an affront to the league that they try very hard to almost deny that it existed they don't recognize the statistics in their official statistics Um, so I think there might be this other very very specific reason for for not wanting to use that name from Taiwan Major League
1: What do you think the um, CPBL in its current form tells us about the people of Taiwan's current sense of nationalism?
0: Hmm. Um, to be honest, when I look at the CPBL now, it doesn't seem... Uh, nationalism doesn't really uh, emanate from it. it. It doesn't seem like it's really about that anymore. Um, it seems like it's, it's much more of this cosmopolitan... Uh, just kind of world culture and where people maybe like uh, like soccer where a soccer fan might like the Premier League and they might pay attention to the Italian and Spanish and German leagues and the American League. So I think a lot of fans of baseball would be the same way. They would go to CPPL games but they would also pay attention to the Japanese pro leagues and the American pro leagues. Um, so maybe nationalism isn't Quite what I get, but I, I do think you're right. I would say that there is this pride in in just the way Taiwan is, um, and so it is a really positive atmosphere. I think the CPBL has achieved. Um, I think they really have emerged from those negative associations and you know, gangster associations and stuff. And I think what they what they put out seems pretty authentic, which is a you know a positive product. And that to me is what i get when i when i see those games is just people having fun um uh like uh players you know who play the game with joy and um i think it just seems like a healthy league and so maybe the expression is, is ultimately more something like that that um taiwan is a you know very functioning very um a very prosperous society, a free society. And it, it's really ironic in that all those years when when nationalism was attached to baseball, say in the 70s, it was at a time when Taiwan was not democratic at all. And so it, one of the things I've written about is this, this paradox that as Taiwan has become more democratic, the game that in many ways represents their culture has kind of become less central. Um, because there's so many other things to do, there's so many um, other places to travel around the world, and things to do in in the different cities of Taiwan, and things to watch on TV. Um, so it it both seems not as central as it was, but still, it does still get to the heart of, of Taiwanese culture in some other way.
1: Right. Uh, it's interesting uh, because you know Taiwan's also like developed so much and become so democratized. There probably Um, other things to focus on so there isn't maybe there isn't a need to have such a central like whether it's a sport or something to um, focus all the energy on but I think it's also really interesting like what you said about the CPBL and um, a couple things I'm thinking like one like how people may not um, because there's so many other baseball leagues around the world to be watching that and they're not necessarily the best but then how it's also become like very cosmopolitan they've cleaned up their image and then you know thinking about the current pandemic now and um, that Taiwan was the first to have live baseball games played um, in front of fans because of that and like do you think that they seize that opportunity to whether it was for the image of Taiwan or for Taiwan baseball, do you think they capitalized on that opportunity?
0: I think they tried. Um, I think it was really clever to... I mean, they did it very safely, for sure. But I think it was clever to use that moment to bring attention to Taiwan as a place that had had beaten coronavirus, if any place on Earth has. I mean, they, they were the ones who did. Um, and so... I think they did so in a tasteful way, in a very smart way, in a very safe way. Whether people got it and whether people listened or noticed or will remember, I think is another story. Um, Because I think people here in the US, um, for a month or so, were pretty excited about baseball in Taiwan. But when the Major League started again, then probably pretty quickly forgot about baseball in Taiwan or baseball in Korea. Um, But hopefully that impression will last of of Taiwan as a, a healthy society, a prosperous society a positive environment I think that really came out in the in the broadcast and I remember um, what I it seemed to be that fans here would, would focus a lot on the things that were unique so maybe like the cheerleaders or the food that was served there and um, like a teppanyaki you know setups and stuff mm. um, I think the, the unique quality of Taiwan baseball came out in a really good way when people were paying attention for mm. those couple months yeah
1: Great, uh, thank you so much. Uh, clearly, you have so much knowledge about this. It's a really interesting way to look at Taiwan's history um, from the lens of baseball. Um, do you have anything else you want to say about baseball in Taiwan today? Hmm.
0: Um, I think that people should uh, check it out. <laughs> I think the CPBL is, uh, you know, like I was saying, it, it's a it's a neat league. It's a positive league. Um, I think it's. It represents the good things about professional sports. Um, I think people should pay attention to sports history when they can. I would maybe just uh, put that call out. Because um, what I've tried to do here, and I think um, in a lot of my writing, is just to to show what looking at a sport can actually tell you about the culture. Um, and so it's not just simply learning about which team was better in these years and which players were better in those years. Um, but the, way, the, re- the reason I'm interested in in sports and history in that way is just that it opens up all these avenues. And so um, I would urge people to pay attention to that as well. I think that can be a pretty fruitful way of understanding different cultures.
1: Great. And so that leads me to ask you, what are you working on now? Are you working on any other work related to sports and history, maybe a different sport or...
0: I'm actually not right now, um, but I am working on a well, actually a very different project. It's a project on the defectors um, who went from China to Taiwan during the Cold War. So essentially from 1960 through about 1990. Um, so they were called the shi or the the anti-communist righteous mm-hmm. men. It's one one translation for that. So I'm looking at their stories and how their stories were understood in Taiwan and what it tells us about anti-communism and the ways that uh, Taiwan, people in Taiwan thought that they might take back the mainland someday or at some point started to realize they wouldn't. Um, so I, I see that as a pretty interesting part of, of Taiwanese history, the that anti-communist period and just the, the different imaginations that people had of, of what might be in the future. Yeah, and that as we know never came to be, of
1: course. Right, right, and I mean it's also interesting to think about what that means today too, how the Taiwanese are thinking about and dealing with the current communist regime in China. Yeah.
0: the The parallels have started to look very similar in certain ways uh, in terms of uh, people from Hong Kong and some of the the activists in Hong Kong trying to seek freedom in Taiwan. Um, Some of the language echoes exactly the language of the early 60s when there would be all these refugees from the mainland um, escaping into Hong Kong, swimming to Hong Kong, and then hoping to get to Taiwan. And it's really interesting. Obviously, very, very different governments now and 60 years ago or 55 years ago. Um, But very similar language about the relationship between Taiwan and freedom and Hong Kong and China.
1: If my listeners are interested in knowing more about your work, um, do you have a website or any social media channels or anything that you'd like to share?
0: Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The best place would probably be my website at Cal Poly, which has uh, some of my work there. There are also um, a couple other really good books about Taiwan baseball if people are interested. Um, Jun Wei Yu wrote a book called Playing in Isolation. It came out in 2007, and we have kind of different interpretations, but his is also a really good book about uh, a lot of the same history.
1: Uh, Um, You can send me all these links, and we'll make sure that we put them in the show notes. So send me any of your books that you'd like me to include, any of other books by other authors you'd want to recommend, and we can put that in our show notes on the website. Okay, well again, thank you so much for your time, and I really appreciate you um, for being on the podcast.
0: This is a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yes, thank you. I've been speaking with Professor Andrew Morris, a professor of history at California Politics State University, about his research on baseball in Taiwan. I hope this episode has piqued your interest, and maybe it's even given you a reason to check out Taiwan's professional baseball. To learn more about Professor Morris and his research, and any links related to items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Wade.
0: Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.